beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. I am rolling this one out to you early. I recorded it thinking it would air sometime in April, maybe. But this conversation with fellow podcaster and author Mary Morantz was so good, was so personally meaningful to me that I'm releasing it just one week after we recorded. I just could not sit on this one any longer. Mary Morantz graciously had me as a guest on her show, The Mary Morantz Show, back in February when I was promoting my book, Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First. And Mary was new to me then. I just started following and listening to her, and I had not yet read her book that just came out last year in the fall of 2020 called Dirt, Growing Strong Roots in What Makes the Broken Beautiful. So we had a great conversation over on her show, especially about having both roots and wings, growing up in one place and then finding freedom in another place. And so after we recorded together back then, I went out and bought her book, Dirt. Y'all, I loved this beautiful memoir, loved Mary is a gorgeous writer, and she's sharing the story of growing up in a trailer in West Virginia and then ending up at Yale Law School. But if you think you know what this story is about, you don't. We talk more about that in our conversation here, but suffice it to say, I was so excited to talk to Mary after I read Dirt because I saw so many similarities in what she was writing about. Not the circumstances, but the feelings. We have a lot in common, and I haven't heard anyone write or speak about it in such a way that left me feeling connected like this. In fact, in this episode, I full-on cry, which I don't think has happened while I was recording in like a very, very long time. 
Before we jump all the way in, I just want to tell you a little bit about Mary. She's a writer, she's a speaker, she's a podcaster. And of course, I will tag Mary in the show description and on social media so that you can follow her everywhere as well. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mary Morantz, author of the recent memoir, Dirt. Mary, welcome to 10 Things to Tell You. I am so, so, so excited to see you and record with you again. We were on your show last month. Now you are on 10 Things to Tell You. I'm so happy you're here. Oh my gosh. Laura, thank you so much for having me. I I told you when we recorded for my show that I was like, you don't know this yet, but we're going to be friends. Uh, And so I feel like I just get to hang out with my friend today. Listen, when you said that, I'm so glad you started with that because you (laughs) did say that on your show and I had not yet read your book when you said that. And so I, you know, didn't totally get it, even though like, (laughs) great, yay, let's be friends. Now that I have read your book, I'm like, oh oh my gosh, I wish that I had known this before because you're absolutely right. We have so many things in common. We think about things in some really similar ways. Let me just start with, and, I, and I'm going to let you introduce yourself to my listeners because I want them to know everything about you, but I just want to start with telling you, I love your book. You are an amazing writer. Oh, thank you. That, well, I mean, that's how I told you, that's how I felt about your book. It's like, you know, I saw the title and saw the concept come in and everything. And I was like, oh, cool. And it's such a beautiful, pretty book that feels like a very merry book. I said, and then I started reading it and I'm like, what on earth, what on earth is happening? Like just such beautiful storytelling. And I just resonated with it so much. So I was very excited for you to read dirt. Cause I was like, I feel like, I feel like samesies. We have, we yes. have a lot in common for sure. I just got chills. We do. We have like a real connection and I'm so sorry. I didn't totally get it. And now I get it. Um, <laughs> That's going to be part of our story, by the way, like 10 years from now, when we're telling people our friend origin story, it's going to be like, well, I knew you knew first. (laughs) That's right. Totally. Um, Okay. Let's just so that everyone can kind of track with us before we get into the book. Why don't you just start and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and, you know, kind of your backstory, what you're doing now, all of Mm -hmm. that. Just give us a brief overview of Mary. Yeah. So I was born and raised in rural West Virginia on the top of a mountain called Fenwick Mountain outside of a little town called Richwood. It's named that because it was rich in wood. And my family goes back in the logging business for about eight generations, basically since we came over from Scotland to North Ireland to Western Virginia. And so I grew up in a single wide trailer that my parents bought in like the late seventies. I was born in 1980 And surprisingly to no one, trailers of the single wide nature bought in the late seventies are not really built to last. They did not, they do not have the longevity of, you know, a quote unquote real house, which is a big journey in dirt, this getting to a real house place. And so it started to leak the, the, you know, water was pouring through the ceiling as hard as it was raining outside. I always say my people are the people who know what drywall or whatever ceiling is made of looks like right before it crumbles when it's just like, so that pregnant pause is so full of water right before it, you know, breaks loose. And then it would pour through the floor and then the floor would crumble. We had this brown 70 shag carpeting where 
between the mud from my dad's logging boots and the stray animals we would keep inside who would use the bathroom and the carpet. Like you didn't know where carpet ended and dirt began. There were mushrooms growing out of the carpet at some point and bugs and mice. And just, I mean, we were in the a snake at one point. We were in the wilds, lots of snakes One at one point in the house. And we were just in the wilds of West Virginia. And I was this 80s scrappy gap tooth perm, you know, curly haired kid growing up there. And the book itself, Dirt, is actually divided into two parts. It's the girl in the trailer and then it's the girl after because it is kind of this lifelong journey trying to make sense, as you know, with where you came from, honoring that, loving that place, but leaving that place and trying to build something different, trying to be this kind of break in your family chains. And so fast forward a little bit, um, I get into the number one law school in the country, which is not really something you usually do um, when you're from a single wide trailer in West Virginia. If you watch Legally Blonde, they might lead you to believe it's Harvard. It's not, (laughs) it's Yale, Uh, What? like it's hard. Um, And so, you know, like if that's like the, the elevator pitch version, this single white trailer to Yale Law School, I think what the book is really about is how regardless of whether you resonate with either of those extremes, we all have these things in our story where we feel like we have to run and achieve our way into being worthy and hide those muddy parts of our story in order to belong. And it's just this sort of this messy place of like, I got into the number one law school in the country and I still felt like I had a big hole in my heart. And Mm -hmm. I didn't even learn my lesson then years and years and years continue to go by. So that's the journey. It's this journey of how do we make peace with the past, embrace where we are, build a good life, but stop trying to achieve for our worth. I have literally so many things to say. I don't even (laughs) know where to start. Do tell us where you are now, what your life looks like now. Because when I'm listening to conversations like this, I do always kind of just like picture the person now, Mm -hmm. even though we're talking a lot about our past and our childhoods, mm-hmm. but where are you now in your life? Well, I live in New Haven, Connecticut. So after law school, well, while I was still in law school and I talk about this in the book, I met my husband, Justin, and we ended up buying a house here in Connecticut, which is really fascinating to me because, you know, the, the book does have a faith element. And I always like to say that God has a really funny sense of humor and the way that he likes to tie things together. So here's this girl who grew up in a trailer that leaked and went to school feeling like, She was ashamed of the fact that her clothes smelled like mildew, who becomes the woman who's able to buy a fixer upper 1880s on the water in Connecticut because there was a pipe burst on the third floor and the whole house smelled like mildew. So it's this really interesting full circle moment, but we have been remaking that house for the last 10 years. We're not quite done. And I'm currently sitting at this white kitchen island as we're recording this. And there's this part in dirt where I say, If you grew up without a lot, you have probably grown up to try to make a house that is warmer, prettier, safer, better decorated than the place you grew up in. Maybe there's a scripty wood sign on the wall or one of those Roman numeral clocks or that white kitchen island that you've pinned to your board. You once prayed for the things you have now, the quartz, because you couldn't afford the marble and throw pillows. Nobody ever tells you how much throw pillows will be a part of your adult life. And so You know, I think a lot of people listening, we are in this journey, right? Of like, you spend the first half of your life trying to go out and make a profit with the gifts you've been given. This is not my quote, by the way, this is Ian Morgan Cron said this to me and I burst into tears. You go out and you spend the first half of your life 
the parable of the talents, trying to make a profit with your gifts. And the second half of your life is the parable of the prodigal son. We're all just trying to find our way back home. And that's kind of where I am now. I'm just entering that second half of this is what it looks like to make peace with home. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, that's so good. Okay. I wanted to go back to what you said a minute ago about how we're all trying to sort of reckon with our past, but so often it's not just about us. Like I think sometimes Mm. we see these movies or we see these narratives of like the, the girl who got out or the girl who ran away from a past or, you know, there's, there's sort of a lot of tropes around this, but what I was really struck by when I was reading your book And I should say a detour because I really want to say this because I've been saying this on the show for months now that I've had a really hard time reading in 2021. Mm -hmm. As I have been launching a book, I have been very unable to read. It has been very, very strange because I can read under any circumstances. I read during the pandemic. I read, Mm -hmm. you know, during hard times in my life. I have not been able to read in 2021. And so I listened to your book. I did your book on audio because that's Mm -hmm. just sort of the best I could do right now. And I loved taking it in that way. You have the most beautiful, soothing voice. And it was, (laughs) and I don't listen to a lot of audiobooks actually, but I can do nonfiction on audio if I'm going to. And so I absolutely loved that. That's my detour. Mm -hmm. Circling back to what I was going to say is I was really struck by your story that your dad, this is actually a fascinating part of your story, Mm -hmm. your dad really wanted you to be perceived as smart. He wanted you to be academically achieving things and that he started bringing home workbooks for you when you were like, I don't know, four or five, what was it? Mm-hmm. And really pushed you in that way. And yeah. I'll, I, and one of the things that you said when you're describing all of that, one of the things that you said was, you know, you, you kind of rise to your occasion. So if people think that you're smart, you act smart. If people yeah. treat you like you're dumb, you think you're dumb and then you you know, don't achieve academic success maybe because the, because of the messaging, having nothing to do with your IQ or your work ethic or anything. Yeah. And so I just, I wondered if you could say more about the fact that it's our stories of getting out or, or, or breaking chains in our family or whatever. It's sometimes generational. We're mm. fulfilling things from someone that came before us as often as we are breaking, breaking these chains of the things that came before us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh man, it's so good that you talk about that. Cause I am actually, as we're recording this, I am right in the middle of finishing up my second book and it's a follow up. I know, <laughs> believe me, it's insanity. And I will sleep for a very long time after this, but one of the things that I'm talking about. So if dirt is sort of a love letter to this girl in the trailer, the second book is a love letter to the girl after. And all the things we put on ourselves. And I I wrote this, one of my favorite sections I've written so far is it's talking about um, when I was growing up, and this does connect, I promise. I had a great aunt Annie. She's my grandma Goldie, who's featured very heavily in dirt. It's her sister, fire red hair, five foot two, just an absolute, you know, one part firecracker, one part sassafras, it runs in our family. And for whatever reason, she didn't get along with a lot of people, but she always really just kind of took me under her wing. And from a very young age, she started what she called a hope chest for me for when I got married, which is normally like a wooden chest, but over time became a room. And then eventually became an entire storage unit where she would just go to Goodwill and tag sales, yard sales, basically every weekend and just hunt for stuff I might need one day as a wife. 
And so Justin and I were engaged and she actually passed away. And we have to go out to, gets to go out to Columbus, Ohio to claim this storage unit of stuff. And we ended up having to rent the biggest Penske truck they have, which is the 26 footer to get all this stuff back to Connecticut. Right. And I talked about how in the, in the actual truck, in the belongings, there was the most random range of things from Tiffany crystal bowl to box of melted plastic angel ornaments who looked like they were crying plastic tears <laughs> at this point. It was just bizarre. And the whole point of that entry is that every one of us are walking around with a Penske truck full of expectations and hopes that other people have for our lives and these hopes for what we're going to go do. And growing up, I think that would be a very um, accurate de description of the expectations that J.R. Bess, my dad, had for what his one daughter was going to do with his life. So I mentioned the book is divided into two parts, but across those two parts, there's actually these two parallel stories, this arc between my dad's story and my story, because we grew up, the trailer got put on the back half of my grandma's yard, which was not a huge yard. So we were about 50 paces from the house he grew up in. And so we grew up in the same yard. We went to the same Sunday school, the same elementary school. And for him, we were on the same path, the same trajectory. If he didn't do something, I was going to end up basically where he did, which was like working a really hard job for my entire life. And so when he went to grade school, kindergarten, he wasn't prepared. His, his dad always kind of jokingly called him dumb his whole life, but he started to internalize that. And so by the time I was going to kindergarten, when I was four, he started bringing those workbooks home. You mentioned by the time I started kindergarten, I was in a fifth grade math and a sixth grade reading level. So you show up at that level and you're just that level of prepared and people go, oh, she's smart. She's ahead of the class. She's ahead of the curve. And you go, okay, because words have the power to speak life or death. And so mm -hmm. there's this balance of speaking life into people, but it not becoming a burden, but it not becoming a Penske truck worth of expectations. And I think mm -hmm. that's like that, you know, you talk about achievers, you talk about like the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram we think I'm an Enneagram four wing three, but it could be three wing four. Um, but either way, like the mask I started to take on was I have to achieve in order to be worthy of love. He never said that to me ever, but it's just what I, oh, people like me better when I get the grades. People like me when I get the gold stars. And, you know, I think like that balance is my dad was speaking over my life. You can be anything you want and you will be anything you want. You know, as God is my witness kind of thing, you will go do this. But in the same breath, he was speaking over himself. This is how it is. This is how it was. This is how it always will be. And so there's a whole conversation I think we can have there about how our thoughts, about what we say about ourselves, mm. about what people speak over us, become our reality. That's right. All of that is so right. And part of it becomes our identity that we either don't want to shake. We take a comfort sometimes, even in the negative stories about ourselves, because it would be scary if you've been told your whole life that you're not smart or that you're dumb. In fact, it is so vulnerable and so scary to try to break out of that and, and start to believe or try to say out loud and try to convince others that that story is wrong. It's not every day that you find a product that you truly love and want to shout about from the rooftops. Well, friends, I have found something that I am genuinely excited to share with you today, and that is Born Shoes. 
Born shoes are made with the best top quality leather with functional stitching and flexibility. They are lightweight, but they're also supportive. They are great for all casual occasions, extremely comfortable, and especially good for travel. The brand recently gifted me a pair of the Ithaca style sandals. Of course, they are beautiful. The footbed has extra foam for added comfort and with a slight heel for lift. I am positive that I could walk all over London in this pair of shoes, just like I did in my Born sandals last summer. Born Shoes offers sandals, flats, boots, and heels in several styles and color choices. Take comfort in Born Shoes. Every season, they make high-quality shoes that feel as good as they look. With artistic touches, unparalleled craftsmanship, and exquisite materials, Born designs shoes to satisfy the demands of every lifestyle. Go to bornshoes.com for a 15% discount plus free ground shipping on all full-price shoes when you use my promo code TELL. That's born, B-O-R-N, shoes, S-H-O-E-S, dot com, and use promo code TELL, T-E-L-L, for 15% off and free shipping, available exclusively to our listeners for a limited time. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating, and yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full-body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben-free. It is also pH-balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, Dot com and use code U, Y-O-U. In your book, there are so many similarities to the way we grew up. I did not grow up in a trailer and rural West Virginia is different than rural Oklahoma in a lot of ways. I mean, we don't, mm. uh, industry in some ways. So that's a big thing. Yeah. You know, when you told the story about the coal miners, that was also like fascinating, but not something that I related to, but- rural life in America, there are still a lot of things that I just really related to just kind of the, the dialogue, the language that you gave with your grandmother, the, um, fact that you had to get a switch and my mom also called it a switch. (laughs) I mean, we're not, are we even allowed to talk about this anymore? That because. I don't know. We're not uh, allowed to talk about spanking. It's not even <laughs> spanking if it's with a tree branch. I don't know what it is. Yeah. 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 And in that moment when my mom says like, you you know, consider yourself lucky, like with my mom, she would make us braid the branches first, you know? So like that was like in her mind, that was like breaking a chain. Right. It's like mind blowing. And then now we're like, I'm like hesitant to even talk about that this happened 40 years ago or, you know, not quite 40 years ago, but you know what I mean? Like, it's just, there's, the world has changed a lot in some ways. Parenting has changed a lot in some ways, but I just saw so much of 
myself in that story, which made me want to talk a little bit to you about when you grow up in a place mm. that is um, rural and that is just facts on the ground, like statistically, maybe not as educated in terms of like book learning, let's mm. just say. And so then there are stereotypes put on those parts of the country that um, it's that it's dumb, that it doesn't understand things. And I know you know this, but I'm just saying this for the record. Book smart doesn't ha- have anything on the kind of smarts that people have to have survived and thrived yeah. and raised their children and held down two jobs like your grandpa and all of those things like smart is relative smart. I'm putting smart in quotes because of sort of what it means, but I too have sort of carried part of the identity of like when I first moved to LA and I said I was from Oklahoma and people just put you in this immediate like Dumbo box that, that, that the accent means that you don't speak well. Right. Or, you know, that you don't know how to, that you can't be cultured if you have never, you know, traveled mm. um, or any of these things that are put on a place. And one of the things that I liked reading about in your book or, or that was just coming through and the stories in your book is this sense of place and how mm. it really permeates into our identities. You do such beautiful details when you're talking about the trailer itself and the mud on your dad's boots, taking your dad's boots off for him. Mm. Like you, you paint really beautiful, vivid, detailed pictures of that. But I don't know if you wanted to say anything sort of about place, like the place that we grow up in and like the stereotypes of it yeah. and how it's hard. Like we talked a little bit this about this on your show, how you go through a phase where you want to deny all of that and like be the opposite of that. And then you sort of come full circle to being like proud of that as you mature and, yeah. and see some of the world, see the city world as you and I both did and be like, you know, what is great yeah. about the country, <laughs> you right. know, like it's a real difference. So I don't know if you want to have any yeah. thoughts on oh, that. I have, I have so thoughts many thoughts. <laughs> I have so many thoughts on that. You know what here, we hear something really interesting, right? Is like, I was writing my book, um, in the context of, uh, you know, other books that have come out. I mean, you know, Hillbilly Elegy is a book that already existed when I was writing my book. And here is literally the, the um, elevator pitch is Appalachia to Yale Law School. And there, that's something that people who are listening should hear right there is like, there's a voice in your head saying your story doesn't matter because the story's already been told. And that's just not true because that's the only on the most surface level, right? And so I had that context coming into it. There were other books that had been released. There were other movies that had been released. I mean, I was sitting in England on my year abroad master's program in a movie theater watching Wrong Turn about West Virginia cannibals. Do you know what I mean? And there's these British people behind me. Oh, my lighty. I hope I never meet any West Virginia people, you know, which is the worst accent ever. But but like, it's just like the, the there's these two tropes about Appalachia in particular of either you are dangerous deliverance, things like that wrong turn, or you're the buffoon, you know, and, and um, we talked about this, I think a little bit when you were on my show about Ashley York and the documentary hillbilly, which I just cannot recommend enough. It's so beautiful. And she actually explores the history of this otherizing 
of rural America. She's talking specifically about Appalachia. She's from Kentucky, moved to LA, got made fun of for her accent. And she's exploring like the history of if we can make these people be less than human, it'll be a lot easier to come in and take their land. It'll be a lot easier to come in and pollute the land and, you know, the coal mining and the chemicals and all this other stuff. And so what was really interesting for me in light of all those movies already existing, all these books already existing, books that had been written in response to some of the books I just mentioned, um, is that I went into writing this book knowing that the people of West Virginia, the people of Appalachia were exhausted from being reduced to the stereotype of, we all live in a single wide trailer, the trucks are up on blocks, there are stray dogs in the yard, you think we're all loggers or coal miners, you think we're all Scotch-Irish. And I'm sitting here going, uh-oh, because I did grab in a trailer. It wasn't a, a truck on blocks. No, we did have strays. They were a logger and coal miner. We are Scotch-Irish. I'm in trouble. And so what I decided to do, and for people listening, here's what you can take from this, is I decided to say, you know what? Let's put it on the cover. Here's the trailer that I grew up in. Let's put it out there. Let's put out the thing that this reader thinks they already know about my story and where I come from. Use that to draw them in so that I can tell them what they don't know right? It's Mm -hmm. like, give them what they want. So you can give them what you need, what they really need. And so that was, that was very strategic and and intentional on my part. And the other thing I'll add to that, it was, is that it was incredibly important to me that there were no two-dimensional characters, that there were no bad guys and good guys. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I challenged myself, the people around me challenged, you know, Mary, none of us are all good or all bad. You know, we are all just humans trying to do the best we can. And so you see my dad, who's kind of the hero of the story, and he's this hardworking, he ends up raising me when my mom does leave. Like he's flawed and has complications. I'm flawed and have complications. My mom who left has redeeming qualities, lots of them. And there is this, you know, like a whole story of healing there. And so I think that's, that's where I landed is like, you think you, the, you know, the city world or the, the people who asked me if I wore shoes growing up or, you know, had food growing up or whatever, you think, you know, everything about this area. So let's start with what you know. And yeah, maybe that was true. And now let me tell you a whole bunch of stuff you don't. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I love that so much. And also, I just think it matters. Individual stories matter. Even if you think that you understand a bigger picture context, which, and look, if you're not from a place, maybe you do, and maybe you don't first of all, but let's just take what you think, you know, and then individual stories still matter. I have a question that's going to follow up with this, but since we mentioned movies, I just feel like, I don't know if you even know this, that my husband made a movie about (laughs) called, he made a documentary called the wild and wonderful whites of West Virginia. What? I did not know that. Do you know the movie? No, I'm going to find out right after this though. It's a documentary. It might be on Netflix now. This is years ago. Like, I mean, years and years ago, he made it. He produced it. He didn't direct it. It's excellent. It's difficult. It's a difficult Mm -hmm. movie um, in the ways that there are parts of West Virginia that are difficult. Um, But it's on this focused on this one family, the white family. And you do get some context for their family. We're all coal miners. What that means for um, the wealth gap, if you will. Like, I mean, the, a lot of keeping the cycle of poverty in yeah. that family for generations. And so you you learn a little bit more about that when you zoom out. But But most of the movie is zoomed in on this one particular family. And 
it's a hard movie. I mean, I'm not going to like go on about my husband's movie, but there's drug addiction and mm. violence. And I mean, it's a difficult movie, but the individual story there matters, which ties to what I also want to say what you just said is I think that you do a very good job, very good job in this book, in your book, telling this story that has some hard parts and staying respectful and Mm -hmm. staying in a loving voice and space, even when, even when you have to say a hard thing, even when the reader can intuit what was especially difficult about this relationship or this person or whatever, I thought you did a really exceptional job of staying um, respectful and above board, even with people who've passed on. So like you could have just laid it out if you wanted to Mary. you could have just said a lot of stuff and, you know, you kept a really high sense of integrity. It's not a lack of integrity. If, if a person vomits out a real story and says the hard thing, but I, I do respect the way that you did it. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit about, cause a lot of people who are listening, I talk so much, I blah, blah on about sharing your stuff, sharing your story, telling your story, and not for public consumption, um, but just in your own life. And I just see women, especially who really out of their own level of respect, uh, feel like they can't, they cannot Mm -hmm. write or talk about these things without saying the hard thing. And so they just, they just don't. And I think you are an example of someone who, oh no, you can talk about hard things and hard situations and complicated people. You can do that without just like burning it all down. Yeah, that's right. Burning it all down is such a great phrase for that. Um, Well, the first thing that I'll tell you that I think is super important for everybody to know is that draft one of dirt was very different. Very different. Say more, say more, please. Yes. So, you know, I signed my book contract in June of 2019 First draft was due December 2nd, 2019, spent six months writing it, turned it in, went and got, you know, went to the movies with my friends and my husband. And I was like, yeah, I think we're basically done. Like, I think, you know, like we'll change some commas, but I think we're there. And uh, I slept on it and had just enough of a beat before I heard back from my editor. My editor hadn't even opened it yet. And I call it my like Christmas Carol moment. I like woke up and was like, oh, is it still Christmas yet? Like, do I have a chance to fix this? Because it was just long enough for me to get a feeling for what that version of the book on shelves would feel like. Like if they were going to hit print and I was committed to that being the version, I knew that's not what I wanted this story to see for. Because that version was the first time I was really saying it out loud, putting it on paper, getting it outside of my body that these things happened. And in hindsight, I know that draft was for me to a certain extent, mm-hmm. anybody listening, you just got to kind of like put it out in a word document. Nobody's ever going to read and get it out of you first of all. So you can turn it around and look at it and see how you feel about it. Um, and like, this is draft one is the version of dirt that I think I would have written had I written it younger. Now I'm saying that just for me in particular, there are certainly people who've written books younger and have done a beautiful job with them. But for me, I needed some time. I needed some time to soften. I think there's a softening that comes with age. There's some wisdom that comes with age. I had grown in my faith. So there was a lot more grace in the story. I got to be an adult myself for a longer amount of time and realize it's really freaking hard. And, you know, just to start to like get perspective of like, my parents were 20 when they had me, Mm. you know, and what was I like at 20? What was I like at 30? What am I like at 40? You know, like there's a certain element of still figuring it out. And so what I got to do is then go, I gutted, Laura, I gutted 50,000 words and I rewrote 
and I rewrote them in two months. So the hard handoff to copy editing was February 17th, December 17th. I started again. I rewrote, I think, I think I kept 20 from the original and re, you know, rewrote or wrote originally 50,000 more. So wait, are you saying that your first draft was more Mm -hmm. condemning of some of the situations? Okay. It was, it was condemning. It was, it was, um, okay. So here's, here's a, anybody listening and you're interested in telling your story in an official book form or just to a friend over coffee, either way, I highly recommend the art of memoir from Mary Carr, because it's just a beautiful, you know, it's, it's sort of written like a memoir itself, but it's teaching you how to tell your story. Um, I also super recommend, uh, share your stuff. I'll go first by Laura Tremaine. (laughs) But one of the things Mary Carr talks about in her book is she says the best memoirists are willing to punch themselves in the face first. And she also talks about this idea of versions of your story going through the draft of true to truer to truest. And so draft one of my story was absolutely true. All of it happened. And even from the beginning stage with my agent and later my editor, I was saying to them, you know, there are a thousand different permutations of how this story could be told of what's in and what's out, depending on if we want this to be a throw everybody under the bus book, a misery memoir is what Mary Carr calls it. Or if we want there to be this to be a story of redemption. And it's not that draft two or the book that you now hold or now listen to is false in that it just took out all the hard stuff. It was this decision of what does all of this potential material look like through the filter of grace. So true, true, and truest. This happened. It's true. Truer is like, I like to picture like you're holding a prism outside your body. And all your life, you've been looking at one facet of that prism. And it's absolutely true. It's the absolute truth. But you get a little older and wiser and you realize there are all these different sides to it. And when you start to say, well, what did it look like from your side of the room? What did it, how do you remember it? What did it look like from your perspective? When you're turning it, you start Mm -hmm. to see where the light gets in and it changes everything. And so truer is how do other people see it? What what was the information you didn't know was happening, was going on. Mm -hmm. And then truest, you know, is what does the story matter in light of God and what he, what he says about it. And so for me, I did hours and hours of phone calls between draft one and draft two with each of my parents. And I just learned stuff I never knew about why they got married in the first place, what her calculus was when she left, you know, we would have lost health insurance if she didn't go travel for that job, for example. Um, And so, you know, there's just a lot of stuff that's like grown up the, 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 you remember it when it was happening to you and then mm-hmm. getting to go back and remember it from another side. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there were, there were some brutal scenes that maybe didn't make it into the, the final draft, but like you mentioned, there were enough scenes and enough descriptions. So the reader knows what's happening. You didn't need to hear it happen 10 times, you know? Yes. At, at a certain point you get it, you know, and it's just like, you're, you're beating the reader up. You're beating yourself up. You're beating that person up at a certain point. So that's where I landed. It was like, what, what's enough? It's knowing what's enough. There's one part in the book that I kind of want to bring up because I'm curious, <laughs> but yeah. like in some ways we, we can talk about this in terms of our parents, grandparents, families, communities, whatever, um, as people where you're trying to keep all of those relationships intact or or something, not burning it down, if you will. Mm -hmm. But what about with people that you are no longer in touch with or even necessarily care about their, you know, you're not, you're not 
protecting them for any way other than for your, maybe your own heart. And I'm going to bring up is that you bring up an old boyfriend who was mm-hmm. um, violent towards you, abusive towards you. Yeah. And obviously I have no idea if you're still in touch with that person or not, but just thinking like the way that you would write about that is different than the way you're going to write about grandma. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> like it. you have different considerations and mm-hmm. I wondered how you thought about sharing that story, not about, about yourself, which is so important. And especially listeners, the way that Mary writes about this is so relatable. And, um, well, you know, I don't want to, to give away the book, but the way that he abused you is not the way that we see it in the movies or is not the way that we think it looks It it, to mm-hmm. me, it was, um, relatable, not in that that has ever happened to me exactly, mm-hmm. but yeah. close like on the fringes of, like you can see how that, how, yes, you can see how you get into these relationships, strong, smart women get in to these relationships. And so, you know, and I'm, I want to be real sensitive to like, this is probably a painful memory, but I, I guess what I'm asking here on the delineation between writing about loved ones and keeping that Mm -hmm. intact versus like, did you want to burn it down? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. A true villain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm okay with us kind of digging into that a little bit. He was a boyfriend who, you know, it's it started off really romantic and like really excited to have a girlfriend and um, hadn't really had a lot of experience with dating before me. And there's a history in his family of abuse. And, you know, it started off with like little small things like pinching the back of my arms through the sweater hard enough to leave like immediate bruises, which is like, I don't know if anybody's ever pinched you on the back of your arm like that, but it hurts. It's like, and I said, like it, it hurts almost doubly both for the pain of it, but also because it's like a hidden pain. Like it's something that he could be doing out and be having a conversation with somebody laughing along with somebody across from the table and, you know, doing that at the same time. And then it began to escalate with twisting of the wrist and choking and things like that. And so the practical answer to your question, and I think this is, a, I've ne- nobody has ever asked me this. And I think it's, um, it's such a testament to that you have actually like really dug into the book and, and thought about it and picked up on that. And so there's a practical answer first, and then maybe we'll get more into the deeper one, which is that we were dealing with permissions issues. And my publisher had a very specific, they have a pretty, like of all the publishers, I think they've said they have one of the strictest permission issues, which is Their standard is if they're not going to sign a permission form, not only can nobody else know for certain who they are, they can't recognize themselves in the story. And so, I mean, that's like almost impossible to achieve, but we have to get as close to that as possible. And so there was some like blurring of the timelines and like Mm. exactly when this happened, which season it was, things like that, which month it was, whatever, where it happened um, to come as close to that as possible. And so it really because we obviously were not going to track him down to get a permissions form. It really meant we had to be um, creative in, in how we were telling it, which lent itself to a, probably a much more like abstract, you know, hinting at this or that. Um, than it yeah. Was. I was going to say, I don't remember much about him, like the details yeah. of him, yeah. which was fine because what it, what it ticked off in me, I have like never, I have never said this publicly like mm-hmm. ever, ever, but I had a boyfriend who tickled me mm-hmm. until it hurt. Yeah. I can't let that say that. 
And it was like what you were saying about the pinching of like, it was sort of socially acceptable to like have a tickle fest kind of thing until it goes past, um, you're actually really hurting me. And, you know, you're like on top of me and whatever. And like, it's, it feels violent, Yeah, but we're young and we're tickling, right? Like it was, it was a real blurred line. And I feel like abusers or people who are wired for that, they, they learn to like really play that line. They, it's like, it's like a form of gaslighting, I guess. Like what? I was just, we were just playing around. Like that wasn't serious. Like, like stop, stop being so dramatic kind of thing. Um, but they know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. Um, you know, there's like, maybe that happens once and they don't know their own strength, but like when that's happening over and over, that's absolutely a form of control, you know, and it's a form of, you know, it's, this is like a weird example, but I had a friend who also had a boyfriend around the same time who was just really starting to dip into those like violent, you know, sides. And I remember being at lunch one day and he was sitting beside me and she was sitting across from us. And I said something he didn't like, and he just like, ha ha ha, that's so funny. And elbowed me, but like did not pull the elbow. Like it looked like he was being playful, but he just like hit me hard in the ribs. And I think he actually like bruised a rib. And that's, they know exactly what they're doing when they do that stuff, you know? And I just, man, it just makes me so mad. Like, I feel like basically, you know, I'm having a hard time thinking of some, a woman I I know who doesn't have some version of this story, you Mm -hmm. know, in their life. Well, I think that it's almost like a a benefit to you having to tell that story vaguely a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, for, for legal reasons, you had to keep it abstract you said or like a little more vague yeah but because of that I I like remembered this this thing that happened in a past relationship with me which it's not that I haven't ever wasn't a buried memory I have thought of that over the years but you being being a little uh looser in the details there like really touched how I feel about that and kind of what we get ourselves into and and aren't sure how to get ourselves out of. Yeah. Yeah. And just sort of that moment of like, oh man, this, this is where this was headed. Like, you know, if, if whatever had happened, hadn't happened for you to end that relationship, like this is where it could have gone. I think there are moments of like realizing that, you know, there was, there was a story in the original version of dirt that ultimately we didn't feel like could make it into the, to the final version because it was really much more my friend's story to tell, but I was present for it. And this line that got crossed with her, like the, the hardest line that can get crossed looking back through that, realizing I was probably next had it not been interrupted, you know? Mm. And so I think there's just these moments where it's like, we can both, sometimes it takes a little distance to go, Whoa, that was not okay. And then it takes a little distance to go, Oh, wow. Like that was headed in a really scary place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think this is why we should tell all of these stories and it, it gets hard as women are, um, you know, this is being navigated a little bit publicly online, like with the me too movement and with a lot of things where sometimes you're hearing these stories and you're like, well, one tickle fest is not equal to someone's darkest day. I mean, right. Like, of course it's not. Um, but the more that we can talk and say, this is where it started or this is where I started to feel itchy about it. So, so if you, my dear sister feel itchy, like you have that in your mind of like, I need to pay attention. This is what a red flag Mm -hmm. is. Like I, we don't, we're not really taught what a red flag is. We're taught 
when the barn yeah. is burning. Right. I'm using like a lot of fire analogies. Today. <laughs> I'm here for it. I'm loving it. <laughs> Yeah, you I know, mean, and so exactly we're, we see the barn burning and then we can look back and be like, oh, yeah, OK, this, that and the other thing happened. But we really need to teach our own daughters and sons mm. and and sisters and everyone like, but let's start at the at where we can. Let's let's go back. Like, let's talk about these stories of like the first time someone said something that was wrong to us um, yeah. or or pinched us or or uh, held our neck beat too long or at Mm -hmm. all, you know, I mean like those kind of things. Um, That's right. Yeah. You know, and also I will just add while I'm thinking of it, it was very important to me that even if we had to be creative in the, you know, details or what have you. And, and I say this in the um, author's note, I think it is, I say we have blurred timelines and we have blurred details, but none, not, it never takes away from the truth of the story. So like the, the point of the story is absolutely still comes across. And, and like you mentioned, it does like build and build and build to like, I'm basically like in a choking situation where I think that's going to be the barn burning day, you know, with, with a chain around my neck, like, like it was serious at that point. I mean, it was all serious, but it was, that was a really serious day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very important to me to get scenes like the abusive boyfriend um, in that same section. There's also a, uh, sexual abuse when I'm little um, section. Mm-hmm. It was important that things like this get into the story because what I did not want anyone to hear, because the whole message of dirt is that these muddy things in your story, you think disqualify you and you think are just like, they cover you in shame. The person that you came out of that to be this tenacious, empathetic, kind, strong person that person um, is not disqualified from that story. That that person was was forged in the fire of that story. And so I did not want anybody to read this book and think muddy up to a point. Muddy, if you grew up in the trailer and that wasn't ideal, but everything else was perfect. You know, everything else was clean. Like I wanted people to see different kinds of muddy parts of my story to understand that um, the hard things that happened to us, I said this to somebody earlier today, like, the worst of your days is not the last of your days. Mm, you know, there mm-hmm. are hard things that happen to you, but they, they, you know, you define doesn't even seem like a strong enough word. Just like they don't disqualify you. They have helped create who you are. And we can, I don't even know if, how I feel about that phrase about thanking them for that, but we can acknowledge that we will see somebody more clearly because of what we've walked through. We will show empathy where others would not even pause because of what we've been through. The fact that you had a boyfriend who did some things that, you know, were crossing the line means you get to ask a question like that and see it and dig in deeper where somebody else would have passed right by. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. When you think of yourself, like in my book, the very first question I ask is, is who are you? And when you think of yourself as Mary mm-hmm. and you're surrounded by this beautiful home, um, in, you know, a loving marriage with a, Mm -hmm. the fanciest degree on your wall that you could possibly have, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, in your pretty pink sweater, like all the things (laughs) like it is a, it is a, a picture, you know, of, of one thing in your like spirit, when you're by yourself, when you're just alone in your silence is Mary, do you, are, do you truly hold both of those things? The girl in the trailer or the, the girl that went to Yale, or do you feel like 
the second half is a response to the first half? Mm, great question. Great question. So, oh, I have so many things to say. I'm going to try to keep them tight. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. So the journey of dirt is that is, that's separate me. That's old me. That's get away from that girl me. Or at the very least, let me hold her hand and drag her behind me because we are running somewhere better. One of my favorite, favorite parts of dirt is it's talking about when you grew up a certain way, somewhere along the line, a switch might flip inside of you. This thing that gets broken on a very profound level and we're not going back. You know, it's this mirror that broke into a thousand shards when you weren't prepared for the reflection and the rest of your life is you just trying to glue those pieces back together. And so I describe this, you know, I say people don't understand that when you didn't grow up with a lot and then you go and you become a very successful person, there's this huge temptation to go, okay, so you didn't have a lot, but it like made you the person that you are and it made you very successful and very driven. So like, how bad can it be? Like you grew up without a lot and now you have a ton. So how bad can it be? Right. That's the sort of mentality. I wanted people to truly understand and get how primal and visceral and survival achieving can become for people like me. And so I say, you know, if I was making a joke, I would say my running is like Forrest Gump when he doesn't know he's supposed to stop running in the end zone and they hand him the football and he keeps running in victory after victory. But it is not like that because for me, my running feels a lot more like the girl in the red cape, this little girl, she's running through the deep, dark woods, branches clawing and scratching at her skin, her clothes, leaving a trail of breadcrumbs behind her, something close behind and closing in fast, ripping at her heels. The big bad wolf, right, is ripping at her heels. And, and I say, you know, when I turn back breathless and wild eyed, I finally see it. I am the girl in the red cape, but I've also been the wolf. I am also the wolf. And the voice in my head saying, run and don't stop running. That voice is my own. So a huge part of dirt is if I can just get out, if I can just go far enough, if I can just achieve enough, if I can just get this degree in this house and these clothes, clothes were a huge cape for me because mm-hmm. of not having a lot of, you know, having the, the clothes that smelled like mildew. Um, and I just, kept accumulating more and more and more expecting to kind of backfill the hole in my heart. Um, you know, there's a part where I talk about like trying to put like gold stars and brand name labels to, to landfill this exposed root hole in my heart. So running, 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 running through all of that. I feel like the girl in the trailer and the girl after the trailer are these two separate entities. And you kind of see this, there's a scene, the very beginning of dirt, um, the prologue, the interlude and the epilogue are in my dad's hospital room. We keep returning there. And there's a line like just a few pages in that says, you know, the girl in the trailer and the girl after the trailer had finally come to stand beside my father's bedside, both, both knowing full well, they should have come much sooner. I could hear the nurses in the hallway at their station and their accents sounded both foreign and familiar at the same time. And so that was to kind of really illustrate that it's almost like having multiple personalities. Like you're experiencing the same set of external circumstances or, you know, environments, but you're seeing them very differently. One through the eyes of that girl in the trailer and one as a grown up. And as we're going through dirt, we see this tightly stitched seam between the two start to unravel so that it's like, they're sort of like, you know, I picture them almost being, I was talking about this the other day, almost like being in like two 
you know, I'm picturing like Ellis Island-esque, like, you know, infirmary wards, like these little sad rooms with little tiny windows in the wall and we're keeping them separate. And there's like these little prison cells of separation because we think if they find each other, one will somehow disqualify the other. And now when I think about it, what I think is there's an article I read in People from Viola Davis and she grew up with similar stories, you know, just growing up without a lot. And she said, people ask me, are you working to heal the little you? And she said, are you kidding me? The little me is healing the grown up version of me because little me is running around my kitchen amazed at my refrigerator. Look at this kitchen island. Can you believe this life we have? Like what? You know, like to be able to glimpse in that moment, all the things you dreamed of that you start to take for granted once they start coming true one by one, little you seeing it in an instant, how much she would freak out. That's sort of, I'd say that's where I am right now. And I'll tell you the weirdest thing of all, Laura, is prior to writing Dirt, I was all about like, we were photographers for a long time. So very moody black and whites and everything had to be very like stark and sophisticated and whatever. And post writing Dirt, it's like little Mary is back in full force. It's rainbows. It's like color. It's like child of the eighties back in full force. Like Punky Brewster is back. Everything is amazing again. So I feel like she's, she's, I don't know if she's running the show, but she's definitely the life of the party right now. Man, I love that so much. And that's the perfect place to close our conversation, which has been amazing. I want everyone to go read Dirt. Can you tell us where they can find you online? Tell us a little bit about your podcast, like all the things. I'll also put all this in the show notes. I'll put all this on social media, everyone, but I want you to hear it out of Mary's mouth first. Yeah. If you go to thebookdirt.com, so T-H-E-B-O-O-K-D-I-R-T.com, you can read more about the book. You can download a chapter and start reading. There's all the links to order if you want to get a copy. And from there in the menu, you can click over to the podcast or you can go to the Mary Morant show dot com. Um, there's a blog there with lots of awesome posts and content. And basically that's kind of like the hub of the website right there. And uh, it's at Mary Marantz on all the socials and come DM me. If you listen to the episode, I would love to hear from you. Yes, please. Everyone. This is amazing. Thank you for being here, Mary. I love this conversation. This is like by far the highlight of my week. <laughs> yeah, mine too. And I wish you weren't so far away. <laughs> come it's to true. Connecticut or it's I'll true. come there. We are come a- there. We are a country apart, truly. Yeah. I feel like you probably have much better weather happening than we do. We do today. I have to say it does not suck to be in Los Angeles (laughs) right now. I'll be honest. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. This was amazing. and you've just listened to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.